Uh, Ephesians 5.15, we can stand together and I'll read. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Oh Lord, if we were to just pick and choose certain demanding verses here, uh, we would not have any hope. <laughs> but Lord, as we read in context the provision and the motivation for power and model in the spirit of the living God, dwelling in and upon his people and in the model of Jesus who's lived this out in his sacrificial love and life for the church. Lord, we need you. Lord, even in teaching today, we need you. Even in hearing today, we need you. And so, Lord, we would just invite this verse 18 upon us at Calvary Chapel today that we would be filled with the Spirit. That we would be filled with the Spirit to hear and learn and grow and to obey, bringing you much glory. We pray that Jesus would be demonstrated in this place and that we would find life in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. And uh, feel free to start my timer back there just to hold me accountable. <laughs> Got a question for you. What makes a marriage a Christian marriage? We have kind of a joke among uh, friends here at the church when we hear someone say, 
oh, he or she's a strong Christian. We're usually like, uh-huh. Okay. Because usually if you have to throw that in there, then, you know, there's, oh, you know, don't look at the other stuff, you know. Or, or uh, recently, uh, you know, we were talking to somebody and we said, uh, oh, oh, you're a Christian. And we were hoping that, you know, it'd be, oh, man, you know, and it was just very much so. It was like, ooh, very much so. Okay, you know, so it was just, all right. So very much so and strong. And that doesn't necessarily mean not, but uh, let's see it lived out right? Let's see it lived out in a marriage. Is your marriage a Christian marriage? Very much so. I hope you would answer today. It's given that not all marriages are Christian. So what makes a Christian marriage? Is it that the ceremony was done in a church by a licensed minister of the gospel who read select passages of scripture? Is it that at the wedding there was a prayer said in Jesus' name? Is it distinctly Christian by the fact that one or both partners attend church on a regular basis? That the couple bless their meal or pray prayers of thanksgiving during the day? That there's framed needlepoint all throughout the house that has Bible verses on it perhaps? A little step back to the 80s and 90s there. That only Christian music is played in the car and only TBN or pure flicks are allowed on the TV and devices? Is it that the wife has surrendered all forms of outside employment to give her efforts totally to the satisfaction of her husband and the development of her household? It's not my intention to just joke or make fun of any of those things, but is that what makes a marriage or a family Christian? What is it? Our friend Art from Western Seminary and Trinity Church in Portland said that it is the zealous willingness between the husband and the wife to live out the nature of the relationship that exists between Jesus and his eternal bride. It is the willingness to imitate Christ's romance of the church And in return, the church's response to that romance, it's living out the gospel. Where does this passionate, zealous willingness come from? In this 14-week series, Gospel-Centered Family, we're finding that the power for this Christian marriage comes from the gospel itself, And the Spirit teaching us and empowering us to appreciate what God has done in saving us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we learned two weeks ago, because family camp and Memorial Day weekend was last week, so we hopped a week. But two weeks ago, we learned that we will never start the discussion on marriage at Ephesians 5.22, which is often where it starts. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Can't ever start it there. Amen? Do you even know why amen yet? Hopefully you're learning over the last few weeks. Because you put the woman in bondage and call her to moralism, and you divorce her from the only means by which she's able to fulfill this strong obligation. 
And so we learn as you look at the language and the grammar, everyone's so excited, that you actually go back by the rules of literature to Ephesians 5, 18, where all the wife needs to do and all the husband needs to do is be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? The language tells us that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, many things will happen in that Christian's life, some of which are wives will submit to their husbands and respect their husbands, and husbands will love their wives and lay down their lives just as Jesus did for the church. This isn't only seen in Ephesians chapter 5, but in the whole context of Ephesians itself. There's two large sections of Ephesians that hinge in chapter 4, verse 1. So you've got your Bibles open like I asked you to do, and you look over at chapter 4, verse 1. And go ahead and little visual here, wiggle those pages back and forth like a hinge and see Ephesians chapter 1's over here, and then I wiggle this page, and Ephesians chapter 6 is over here, because there's a hinge chapter and a hinge verse, chapter 4, verse 1, that says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now that word, therefore, at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, is what's called a logical connector. It's the hinge, okay? What will follow the rest of the book is a logical consequence from what has happened before, all right? What happens after the hinge just naturally hinges off of what happened before, if you look clear back at the first of the book, which you will, right? Go into Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. We're going to read what is the high and holy calling of the Christian. What we have here are what we call redemptive indicatives, okay? We're just going to read a whole lot of blessings from God to the Christian. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Boom. Oh man, look what he's done for us. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and without blame before him in love. So he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's chosen us for a purpose. Verse 5 having predestined us to adoption. Man, what a blessing. Adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Like, guys, so far... This is just like a whole lot of good goodness that he's given to us. Okay, so let's just, you know, it's a scratch and sniff right now, guys. Just, oh, just, okay, love that, okay, love that. Let's keep scratching. Verse 11, in him we also have obtained an inheritance, don't mind my counting here, being predestined according to the purpose of the work 
uh, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Jump down to verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So again, this is an unbelievable list of blessings that has been given to us as Christians. So far, not one word asks or tells or commands us to do something. It's just total expression of God's goodness and what he's done for us in the gospel. Let's keep going. You guys, you cannot let this goodness get old, okay? There's a problem in your Christianity if you're bored already. Just telling you. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So that's what we call the bad news, okay? Bad news is you were bad, okay? You, don't point next to your, don't point at your husband, talking to you too, okay? You were bad, okay? And if you're outside of Christ today, you bad, okay? You're bad now, all right? In fact, if you didn't notice, it's demonic bad. Like you're devilish bad, okay? Um, But the good news is, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what we are reading right now, you guys, is the Christian's biography, right? If you're a Christian, this is your story. If you're not a Christian, This is not your story. It's the story of the Christians in the room, okay? Good news is, why don't you join today? Why don't you come on in? Let this be your story as well. It's our biography as Christians. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, that's non-Jews, who are called uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Top down to verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Okay, so, so far, he hasn't asked one thing from us. These are just the riches of the blessings that come from knowing him and receiving his grace, what he has done and made for us. Again, just a whole lot of goodness in here, okay? Let's move on down to Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. So now he's praying over the Christians in Ephesus. He would grant you by the rich of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then wrapping it up, he prays that God would be glorified in the church. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so all of this is the riches of what Christ has done for us. Chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, the first half of the book, it was, was called the redemptive indicative. Okay, don't let that like, like fry a circuit inside here. Okay just means it indicates that God redeems, okay? Indicates that God redeems. The redemptive indicative, the statement of fact of what God in the good news of the gospel has done for you. Then beginning in chapter four, verse one, through the end of six, he turns a corner and states what we now call moral imperatives, okay? Things that we must do morally if chapters one through three are true for me, okay? He moves from what is to what ought to be. If this, what we just read, is true for you, then chapters four through six ought to be happening in your life. And so that's where we came to 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you or beseech you to walk. This is the first time we've been told to do anything in the whole book. It's time to walk. And in the walk, walk worthy of the calling by which you were called. Paul essentially is saying, let there be unity between what God has done for you and what you were called to do. Why would we take time in a Sunday morning? We got limited time, and why would we use it on all of that? You just read like two chapters of the Bible, man. That was a whole lot of preaching time that you missed out on. 
I read it because this is the Christian life. This is the spiritual life. This is the gospel-centered life. This is the grace life. The gospel life is not do this and God will bless you. Instead, it is God has blessed you. Now do this. There's a big difference. I can put a big old trip on you and say, if you're just not going to obey, then you're just not going to be blessed. Instead, I can say, can you just look at what Jesus has done so abundantly, gracefully, and sacrificially for you? And doesn't that just cause you to want to live a life in response to that? Now we get to chapter five and a whole lot of marriage and family stuff. And you got to realize that it is not an independent piece from chapters one through three. Paul isn't saying, you know, I've been writing a whole lot of theology stuff. And I know that's like seminary stuff. And like none of y'all wanted to go to seminary. So already you're checking out in this letter. So why don't I just go ahead and, you know, put a, put a little list of do stuff together, a honey-do list or a to-do list, and just that'll make you happy and kind of entertain you for a little while. He notices that people are starting to move and stir around as they're reading the letter, and so he says, I'm going to go ahead and do another topic now in the book of Ephesians, marriage and family, and that ought to make you start paying attention. That's not what happened. That would miss the point of Ephesians altogether. This is a vital part, chapter 5, verses 18 through 33, is a vital part of the whole exposition of the letter. Acts of obedience to the God who first blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. In chapter 5, the structure of the text makes it evident. Paul will comment to husbands and wives to really, he'll break it up in three distinct parts, okay? Part one is in verse 22. You can even uh, maybe even make a little note. Verse 22, wives, this is part one, wives submit to your husbands. Also in part one, husbands love your wives, Okay? I'm going to hop over part two and come on over here to part three, where he almost says the same thing again. So also, wives should submit to their husbands in the same way, verse 28, husbands should love their wives. So part one, a lot of submission and a lot of love going on. Part three, a lot of submission and a lot of love going on. But sandwiched between one and three, like a holy Oreo cookie, is part Two, it's the frosting, it's the good stuff, it's the picture of Jesus and the church. Part two is verses 24 through 25. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing 
but that she should be holy and without blemish. It's part two that makes the whole thing totally patented as Christian. That's what makes it a Christian marriage. These moral indicatives, observed facts, are tied to what we call Christological imperatives. Okay, The things that we listen about what Jesus has done, and now it changes behavior. Listen, I know those are big words. Let's break it down to this. Gospel-centered living is not do and God will bless you. It is God has blessed you, now do. That's the nugget to take home today. With Paul in the whole New Testament, every moral or ethical topic is an opportunity to preach what Jesus has done, to preach Christ. There's a missionary ring about everything he tells us to do. And that should be the case in our church. All of our preaching, all of our teaching, all of our counseling, all of our discipline, it's not going to be Christian if we miss out on the gospel. This is what makes a marriage a Christian marriage. Most of what the Bible has to say about marriage will be in contrast to what our culture is saying about marriage. All of your magazines that you're getting and all of the books that you're getting, look for the gospel in it. If it's not centered on and upon and around the gospel, you will find yourself disappointed at the end of the day, having no power. The spirit of our age and the spirit of Jesus Christ are always running in opposite directions. And if you use discernment as you read your magazines and your books and your blogs, you may see that to be the very truth. And so we come to this passage that is very difficult on submission. There's obviously offense to it, and we all know why. And we all kind of, you're like, oh, he's going to read that verse, you know, and we all kind of, maybe he's just going to move on and talk about children obeying their parents or something, you know, because it's a little awkward little uncomfortable. In our culture, people try to dismiss the passage regarding wives living in lives of submission due to context. Thinking that, oh, hey, we were never supposed to have slaves, which I read about in chapters, you know, six of Ephesians. So wives were never supposed to be submissive to their husbands either. This is not to be compared with God's role for men and women. God created the institution of marriage, not the institution of slavery. Then we have culture. Back then, women were held down. So this passage is not applicable today. Because we dismiss a scripture dealing with women wearing head coverings, The women were to wear this symbol of submission to their husbands. Therefore, we also dismiss throwing the baby out with the bathwater, the actual principle of submission, one role to another. 
This is why it's good to come to Equip School of Ministry when we teach about Bible interpretation. People today bring their spectacles and say, Paul is just trying to diminish women. That offends me. And that Paul is just out of step with our culture. He would not fit in here. It's true. It would be scary. But news for you, you're the new Paul. Have fun with that. It's true that Paul is out of step with our culture because he was also out of step with his own culture. Paul, in what he writes here about husbands and wives and even wives submitting to their husbands, is actually elevating women and diminishing men. This was revolutionary in his time that he even addresses women and in chapter six addresses children. And then also in chapter six, he addresses slaves. You guys, this was unthinkable. This was radical. This was revolutionary as if he actually regarded women and children and slaves and men to be equal in value. That's what's going on here in the Bible, friends. Let's look at the culture in which Paul wrote this. In Jewish law, women were pieces of property, just like his house, his flock, his land. A man could divorce his wife for any reason that he chose. She didn't have the same opportunity. It was almost impossible for a wife to divorce her husband Unless there was leprosy, death, or gross immorality. And easy, the dude with the AC key, can you turn the heat up a notch? I'm seeing women like, oh, I can't handle it. And men are like, man, it's hot in here. So we're going to lead like Jesus, and we're going to turn the heat up. Love you, Ease. Thanks, brother. In the Greek, so that was the Jewish culture. In the Greek culture, many times... The men, or I'm sorry, the women would live alone with other women. They would eat their meals alone. They would only see the man when he called for her. Then she would be put back. He could enter into as many relationships as he liked outside of marriage without consequence. A writer, Demosthenes, wrote, We have courtesans, which are high-class prostitutes and mistresses who are associated with the rich people. Uh, We have these high-class prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. And we have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. And we have wives for the purpose of having legitimate children and having faithful guardians of our household affairs. I can't even comment on that. That's not dignity, but it's the context that Paul is writing this first century epistle. Rome was no better. We've looked at the Jews. We looked at the Greeks. Now let's look at the Romans. Jerome writes of one woman marrying her 23rd husband, and she was his 21st wife. In Rome, women didn't want to have children because it ruined her appearance. Glad that doesn't happen today. Some wanted to do everything that men did. Glad that doesn't happen today. 
So they developed women wrestlers, women sword throwers, and women everything else. Juvenal writes, the women began to lord it over their husbands, and before long, they'd vacate the home and flip from one marriage to another, wearing out their bridal veils. (laughs) Apparently, they kept them for the next one. Tim Savage writes, the first century was a time when, not unlike our own, women were asserting their rights and climbing to the positions of social prominence. The injunction to subordinate themselves to their husband would have sounded as reactionary to their ears as it does to ours. The culture of Ephesus, where Paul sent this letter, was not a culture that would have just received it. Because Paul would have been kicked out for elevating the woman, for providing a new way of life that was never known in Greece or in Rome or even for the Jews. This is the same man who on one occasion campaigned uh, on behalf of either women's rights or he coined this revolutionary slogan, there is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Paul the Apostle. He elevated women and brought them into the equal value as men. He elevated children. He elevated slaves as we're all created in the image of God. We are equal in value and in worth. History traces a pathetic trail of male chauvinism. Plato believed that a bad man's fate was to be reincarnated as a woman. Aristotle taught that females are imperfect males accidentally produced by the father's inadequacy or by the malign influence of a moist south wind. Josephus, a Jewish historian to the Romans, believed that the woman is inferior to the man in every way. In the Jewish Talmud, these are traditional writings of the rabbis, men are taught to give thanks that God did not make them a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In Gandhi's autobiography, who our culture just adores and worships, He wrote, a Hindu husband regards himself as Lord and master of his wife who must ever dance attendance upon him. I think people kind of forgot to read that part of Gandhi's writings. In the Quran, it's written, men have authority over women because Allah has made the one superior to the other. There's an unbroken tradition of male domination in the East and in the West. So if you in America today want to go ahead and be a rebel, if you want to rebel, tell people it's right for a wife to submit to her husband. That would truly be countercultural. It's not revolutionary to say, I won't submit. If you want to start a revolution, tell them you want to do it the biblical way. In Song of Solomon, we have submission and authority perfectly interwoven when it's written, I am my beloved's 
and she is mine. Now, as we read this, we begin to have all sorts of arguments rise up within us. Our flesh is like a defense attorney that begins countering the word of God at every opportunity. And we begin to take the most extreme situation, as we do with the abortion issue, the most extreme situation is always used like a rape or incest case. It's never the 25-year-old woman who's having her third convenient abortion. We can't just argue because of the extreme situations. Submission is a volatile world in our culture, and even to speak the term renders the preacher or person saying it subject to all kinds of tyranny and oppression as if he's a bigot, as if he's preaching that a wife is to be regarded from her husband as a servant or as a slave or as a doormat. But if a man is preaching it biblically, that is not the case at all. As he preaches biblical submission, he's elevating the woman, even in our culture. God's word in the hand of a religious fool can do great harm. And I've seen it time and time of again, where men pervert the truth and use Ephesians 5.22 as a way to tyrannize their wives, demand service for their every whim, that wives wear what they want them to wear, can go where they want them to go, they must do what they want them to do, And their only power as men is that they can quote one verse in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.22, so that they can boss their wives around. It's happening in Prineville today. Religious, hypocritical, prideful men being tyrannical towards their wives and not teaching submission and not living submission in a gospel way context. Truthfully, the right definition of submission from the Greek word, if I can say it right, hupotasso, means to just line up under, as in placing in order. The expression is originally used in military contexts where conscripts would come and they would line up under their commanding officer. The most accurate English translation would probably be the term to subordinate. According to Paul, the most helpful helpful piece of wisdom he can offer to wives is to subordinate themselves to their husbands. Submission on the part of Christian wives to their husbands is defined as a voluntary yielding to the love of her husband. That is Christian submission in a Christian marriage. Can I say it again? The voluntary yielding to the love of her husband. Steve Carr writes, finding the opposite meaning of submission can make it clearer as to why God wants it to be this way. Antonyms of submission are this, defiant, mutinous, rebellious. These are not attributes compatible with a healthy marriage. 
If there's unwillingness to subordinate yourself, it will drive couples apart. Unselfish guilt giving will always draw you together. One guy wrote, and I read it in a couple different books, it must be the illustration, is that God's design for marriage is a choreographed, a choreographed dance of submission to love. You guys ever watch like the pro dancers and they're all just totally in beat and totally in step and there can be a hundred of them on the stage and they're all dancing and it, it all totally works. It's choreographed. There's a design. It doesn't just happen like you think it does on TV. All of a sudden, they're all dancers and singers. No, someone spent hours and hours drawing this thing up like a football play and then giving it to the people, putting the music on and having them do it over and over and over again. That's what marriage is. There is thought and design and intention behind it by the creator of the universe. And as he puts the X's and O's and the footsteps together, when it's all lived out, there will be a choreographed dance and in that, there will be a submissive partner and there will be a loving partner and it'll be a perfect waltz, if you will. It's not coerced. It's not forced. As we're led by the spirit in verse 18, it's voluntary. Now it's voluntary. And I always think of Pearl Harbor, you know, when, when the Doolittle Raiders are about to take off, you know, the, the actual movie Pearl Harbor, not the real Pearl no, I think of that too. You know, the Doolittle Raiders about to take off and, and to go bomb Japan. And uh, there's all these guys that are, you know, they're volunteering. And there's Alec Baldwin, you know, he's Jimmy Doolittle. And he just in this really cool voice says, there's nothing stronger than the heart of a volunteer. <laughs> it's true in marriage, too. There's nothing stronger than the heart of a volunteer. And today, wives, I'm sorry, the focus is on you. Don't worry, it'll get to the husband but you are to voluntarily submit to your husband. There's nothing stronger than the heart of a volunteer. It's voluntary because, first of all, notice how verse 22 begins. Wives. Everyone just feel free to put a box around that word or you know, use whatever you got. Wives. It doesn't say husbands, but wives. Now, this is what grammarians or grammarians, whatever they call themselves, the guys that study this stuff, they call it the rule of direct address. It's as if you can take the other verses and direct the men directly. You're going to take the other verses and direct the children. You're going to direct the masters and the slaves because it's addressed to them. But verse 22, it's directly addressed to wives. The language here, listen to this, everybody. What it means is, husbands, you don't get to use this verse. This isn't for you. This is for the Lord by the Spirit to speak into the heart of the wife as she's before the throne in the Word of God. You don't get to leave the Bible out on the counter with a big highlighter around this verse and point it and be like, oh, honey, this Bible verse fell open. It's totally for you. This is between the Lord and the wife. It's him directly addressing her. What also makes it voluntary is that, secondly, submit is borrowed from the previous verse. Okay, We kind of studied this two weeks ago. 
Every Greek verbal idea has an active and a middle and a passive tense. Now, guys, I was not an English dude in high school, okay? I didn't even go to college. So if this is a little bit like, don't worry, it is for me too until you find out what makes it so awesome. So can you just bear with me a little bit? You got four minutes and 45 seconds left today. Can you just, 41 seconds, 40 seconds. Okay, can you just bear with me a little bit? Here's why this is so awesome. In the Greek, the active tense would sound like this. I drive to the store, okay? I performed the action, okay? The, the passive tense is, I was driven to the store. The action was performed to the store. But in the middle, it's, I drive myself to the store, which stresses voluntary action on the part of a very free person and a very responsible person. So in Ephesians 5.22, it's the middle action stressing that it is a voluntary character on the part of a free and responsible person. So what does this mean? It means that the husband is never to use this verse as a club to demand from his wife submission. It's not a license to break her will or her spirit to make her your servant and to bring her into subordination. So husbands, I'm sorry. You just lost that big old club with a nail at the end of it. All right? Wives, submit to your husbands voluntarily. It's not wives, be made submissive to your husbands. Husbands aren't even addressed till verse 25. 40 words are addressed to the wife and 115 are directed to the husband. We needed a little bit more. The moment a husband takes it upon himself to demand submission, you must submit to me, the spirit of this whole thing is lost. Ephesians 1 through Ephesians 6, you have just ripped it up and made it something of your own. It's important to be taught the word of God in context, isn't it? Because I'll be honest with you, I've been married 15 years this July, and you want to know how many times in the first few years of marriage I was like, honey, it's time for a Bible study today. Let's just pray before we get into it, huh? We only have time today for the first few verses, so, you know, don't worry. But it starts out, wives, you know, and it's like... There's a reason she's not even in here today. She's like, I'm just going to go hold the poopy babies in the back until you start living it out. Voluntary submission calls for total devotion. Total devotion. What does submission mean? At the heart of it all, it is the notion of order. It's a term of order. It's the readiness to renounce your own will for the sake of another's, to give precedence to others. I have loved this quote for many years now, that it represents a call to wives to give to their husbands what belongs to the wives by rights, fully equal to their husbands, godly wives 
choose to put the needs of their husbands before their own. They are not subordinate, but with God's help, they willingly subordinate themselves. It is the volitional or voluntary aspect of subordination that makes it so revolutionary. It is also what makes it so exalting. It was the willing submission of Jesus that paved the way for the power of heaven to invade what would have otherwise been the unremarkable existence of a Galilean carpenter. You know, if in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was like, I'd rather not go to the cross. And the Father was like, well, it's the only way to save the world. And Jesus is like, well, too bad. And then he just went off and like finished living life like, I don't know, up in Tiberias or something. Then kind of a dead end story. But because he willingly, as the second person of the Godhead, fully equal in value and worth to the Father and the Spirit, because he willingly stepped in line in the the roles and functions within the Trinity, and he said, I prefer your idea, Father. And because the Spirit comes in later in the New Testament and says, I prefer your idea that I'm going to go and minister on the earth now and I'm going to cause everyone to look at the Son. He's also submitting Himself. Because of that, the gospel is good news and the world is being saved. Worship team, come on up. We'll close with Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What that means is that Jesus is equal to God in value and in worth. But Ephesians 2, 7 says, he made himself of no reputation. So here you see the steps of submission. Okay, I'm God, but I'm going to voluntarily make myself of no reputation. I'm going to voluntarily take the form of a bondservant or a slave and I'm going to come in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, I'm going to humble myself and become obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now that kind of seems like if you just stop there, like, boy, that did not end well for Jesus and his whole submission idea. But then it says, therefore, God, who's kind of like the husband in this case, he has a role that that is different than the son. God also has highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To quote a woman, Tim Keller's wife, in the book, The Meaning of Marriage, she wrote the chapter on submission. It was kind of cool. So she, she reads Philippians 2, which we just did, and she says, I discovered here that my submission in marriage was a gift I offered, not a duty coerced from me, 
As I personally struggled with understanding gender equality within gender roles, it was this passage that entirely took the sting out of the subordinate role assigned to the female sex. This passage is one of the primary places that the dance of the Trinity becomes visible. The son defers to the father, taking the subordinate role. The father accepts the gift, but then exalts the son to the highest place. Each wishes to please the other. Each wishes to exalt the other. Love and honor are given and accepted and given again. It's the dance of the Trinity. And it's the same choreographed dance within marriage. Artaxerxes said, Submission is one's response, not to a superior person, but one's response to a person holding a superior position. If you've read the book Band of Brothers or have seen the movie, you remember that there's this classic quote by Major Richard Winters. As Captain Sobel bypasses him without rendering the proper salute If you guys remember the scene, now it's Major Winters. He's a total awesome soldier. He's like a hero of D-Day. He used to be a lieutenant under this jerk, Captain Sobel. You guys know the story that the, the troops were not fond of Sobel. And eventually they kicked him to the curb and Winters began to rise in rank. Well, later on, these two men now pass each other out at the base. And now who was below has been raised up. And now who was up, he's below. We got a major and a captain. And this jerk of a captain refuses to salute the now major. And the major has the power to say, Captain Sobel, we salute the rank, not the man. See, God is a God of order. And in creation, in Genesis chapter 2, he created roles of order. Everyone's valuable. Everyone is equal, equally important, equally valuable, equally cherished, but different and distinct in roles and functions. That's even in the Trinity. And so wives, the word for you is willingly salute the rank. Willingly salute the rank, the role that is God-given. Closing with this last phrase, promise, Steve Carr from Covenant Keepers. We can stand together. That just makes it even more real, doesn't it? He's really going to shut up. (laughs) Little trick, bring the worship team up, throw four more quotes in there, everyone stand. They teach you this in Bible school. Steve Carr wrote, Submission should never be considered a word that denotes inferiority or a position that is contemptible to you. If this is your belief, let me assure you that your understanding of this issue is not a biblical one. Submission is something that we all have to learn in every aspect of our lives. You must learn to submit to the laws of this country, whether they are traffic laws or criminal code. If you work outside the home, you must submit to your employer and his or her request. When you went to school, you had to learn submission to the teacher when an assignment was given. 
When you go to the doctor with an illness, you must choose whether or not you will willingly submit to your physician's diagnosis and treatment. When you must render submission in these areas of life, you don't consider it degrading to you as a person. You would never think that your employer or your doctor was better than you are and that you are inferior to them. In these circumstances, you would reason that your submission is a simple necessity for harmony in the workplace or necessary for you to gain your health. The same is true for your marriage. True biblical submission in the home will bring harmony and health to your marriage. And so with that being said, you know, this is week five of a 14-week series. It all builds upon each other, starting all the way back with God's design and creation. But today I think we saw it so clearly that Jesus is the model of submission. Though he had every right, though he was God, though he was valuable and full of glory, he willingly took on flesh and became a man all the way to the humiliating point of hanging naked on a cross and being murdered by his own creation. And Peter would tell us, wives, there's your example. I know, wives, you're thinking, you don't know the man I married, Rory. You just don't know. You don't know what it's like. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is the model. Follow him. And Lord, as we look to Jesus, we call out for the Spirit. Empower us and fill us afresh today that we can submit to one another in love, that wives can begin this role of submission to husbands. And as we're going to learn that husbands can walk in that sacrificial role of loving their wives to the point of death. We need you, Lord. Our marriages are toppling over and crumbling and they are just blowing up and exploding and it's just disastrous. And Lord, we need the spirit of the living God. And so we cry out, for more of you today. Heal us in Jesus' name. Let's close in this song.